Okay, if you uh, would like to uh, turn in your Bibles or flip on your app or whatever it is young people do to Mark chapter 14, and you shall pick up our study. Let's just bow our hearts one more time, shall we, as we come to God's Word together. Father, we do thank you so much that you've given us your Word, because Lord, your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Father, in the confusing world that we live in, Lord, surrounded by so much despair and darkness, Lord, you've given us a wonderful roadmap. Lord, you've given us something that comforts our heart, that, Lord, gives life to our spirits. And Father, we pray that as we study this morning, you would stir us, that we would be excited by your very being, Lord, who you are, and excited, Lord, by the things that you are doing in our midst. Lord, we just give you this time now. Speak to us each individually, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14. We're going through this final week now. We refer to typically as Passion Week. Um, last time, in fact, say last time actually, for the last three or four weeks, we've been in Mark 13. Mark 13 took place on the Tuesday, and it's where we get the Olivet Discourse, uh, where Jesus, um, with the disciples, they leave the temple area where they'd been and the disciples typically peter um says look, look at these stones look at this building isn't it wonderful and jesus then says you know what it's all going to be knocked down not one stone will be left on another and of course that was fulfilled literally in ad 70 you know whenever we find prophecy we find that it's literally fulfilled there's not some allegorical or figurative type of fulfillment it's literal when in the old testament it spoke of in micah of jesus being born in bethlehem wasn't figurative, it was literal. You know, every time we see things, uh, we can take it exactly as God's word says. He says what he means and means what he says. And when we commented and said how interesting it was that on this two days, effectively, before the crucifixion, Jesus spends this time going through one of the most detailed accounts, the longest discourse he gives, um, all talking about the things that are going to happen. And of course, it was important to the disciples to understand, but how much more to us in the days where we're seeing these very things take place. You know, the wars, the rumors of wars that were spoken of by Jesus refer to conflict on a global scale. And isn't that what we see? And that's what we remember today on Remembrance Sunday. You know, we live in that generation where we've seen the First World War, the Second World War. And of course, we talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about some of the things that are coming. There will be another world war and it will be the nations of this world united against Israel. Uh, and those are the things we've been going through. But as we move forward now, we get to the latter part of uh, that Tuesday, uh, going into the evening. Now, for the Jews, when it gets to the evening, typically 6 o'clock, it becomes the next day in their calendar. Okay, and then we're going to go on and look at all the events that took place that evening, and then, Lord willing, we'll move on. We're probably not going to get through the whole chapter this morning. And uh, we'll just keep going till you fall asleep, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll draw to a close. But um, we'll get to somewhere, uh, probably onto the Wednesday of that week, the day before uh, the crucifixion. So, <clears throat> we read Mark 14, and the first part of the first verse. And it says, after two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. Now, if you've done any reading in the Old Testament at all, that should cause you to ask a few questions immediately because there's two feasts that are mentioned, the feast of the Passover 
and of unleavened bread. Now, we'll talk a little bit more in a moment, but these are two separate things. So we have to try and understand what is being said here by Mark, because they can't both occur on the same day. They were two separate things. Now, the first thing is after two days. Now, we've already looked at our timeline where we are. So we are on the Tuesday afternoon, as it were, at this point. And that's where we're told after two days. Now, two days will take us up to the following day will be the 15th. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It kind of, it's the day after the Passover. So straight away there's a kind of a, an issue. And a lot of people that have gone into this will tell you, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible. You can't reconcile the days and the dates. Well, no, you can. But you have to be diligent. You have to study. Actually, it's not all that confusing when you do do a little bit of study. Because Luke helps a little bit. He tells us, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. So straight away we're being told that there's synonymous terms here. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread is also called the Passover. Verse 7 of Luke 22, he says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. Okay, so we understand we've got different terms. Now, a little bit of study, what we see is we've got the first day of unleavened bread that begins on the 14th in the Jewish calendar, the 14th of Nisan. It's typically our March-April time. We also have the Feast of Passover, which was also to be on the 14th, looking back to what had taken place in Egypt. It was on the 14th that they left. And they went, obviously, out of Egypt that evening. But then we also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th. But then we also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is not the same as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Are you with me so far? It's a term that's used for the festival period. So there's a specific day that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or well, it is the feast, that's the, that's the day on the 15th. But the whole festival period is also referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because for seven days, we'll see, the Jews were to eat unleavened bread. And that, when it's referred to, the Feast of Unleavened Bread in that context, is always referring to the festival period counting from the 15th. Why? Well, it's a little bit like Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. For a lot of people, Christmas Eve is a day they've kind of finished work, many people, and they don't really do anything. But the next day, Christmas Day, is when really the celebration begins. So the 14th was referred to as the day of preparation. It was the feast of Passover. But it was a day really before they entered into the festival proper. What we find from the Old Testament is that on the 14th, they were allowed to do certain types of work, okay, but not anything for which they would receive payment. But from the 15th, no work was permitted. It was one of the high Sabbaths of the year. There are a number of them, specifically, and that didn't have to fall on a Saturday. It was just a special day that was to be set apart. We also have the term, the Passover, And that's typically, again, the festival period counted from the 15th. So as well as being referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the whole festival period is also referred to as the Passover. Now, if you don't know that, when you read these verses, they become quite strange. Now, John 13 helps us a little bit and puts some of this into context because we read, Now, before the Feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was to come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And notice this, and supper being ended. 
They've just celebrated the Passover. And yet John says before the Feast of Passover. So this verse helps us to see that they use different terms to refer to different parts of this week. In fact, what we see is that John, Luke and Mark all refer to the feast or the festival of unleavened bread beginning on the 15th as the Passover. And there's some verses there you can go and check it. Now, this is nothing new. Sir Robert Anderson, many, many years ago, uh, in his wonderful book uh, called The Coming Prince, uh, stated this. He said, In the same way that the Feast of Weeks came to commonly be designated Pentecost, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was popularly called the Passover. That title was common to the Supper and to the Feast, and included both. But the intelligent Jew would never confound the two. And if he spoke emphatically of the feast of the Passover, he would thereby mark the festival to the exclusion of the supper. Okay? Hopefully they'll become clearer as we go through and you see these things. So that just gives us the context. There is no contradiction. When Mark is giving us this, Peter's account effectively that Mark is recording for us, after two days from that point, that Tuesday, would take you to the 15th, and that is when the festival really began. Okay, and that's what Mark is alluding to here. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. The whole period, the seven days were unleavened, there was to be unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, this is taking Jesus, by craft and put him to death. But they said, notice this, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. This is incredible. See what's going on here. The Jewish leaders don't want to take Jesus during this period of time. This is when there was a whole multitude, tens of thousands of people descending upon Jerusalem to celebrate these Jewish festivals. It was a really important time of the year. Now, it may be that many of the people in Jerusalem didn't care that much about Jesus. They may have heard the rumors and some of them would have seen the things that have been happening during this past week in the temple. Jesus going in, turning the money changers tables over and so on, which happened two days running as we saw. But many of the people in the outlying areas and particularly up from Galilee, not only had heard about Jesus, they wanted to follow him. And many of those individuals were coming down to Jerusalem and the Jewish leaders knew that full well. So to try and take and arrest Jesus, who many people believed to be a prophet sent from God, during this period of time was a recipe for disaster because, as they say, lest there be an uproar of the people. You don't take some popular figure out during the time when all his supporters are gathered around. It would be a very dangerous thing for them to do. So the Jews clearly did not want to do this at this point. So the question we then have to ask is, why did they? Well, the answer is quite simple. It's because 1,400 or more years before this, everything that went on in this week had been written down and recorded in God's word. And God was not about to change his timetable because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders were a little bit upset because of the things Jesus was saying. God had ordained all of these things. Okay, so again... Let me ask you this question in relation to this. How important is worship? Well, we obviously have a time of worship as a church 
every time we get together, certainly as a, as a body like we hear, are here this morning. I think we'd all agree that worship is quite important. But actually, worship is very important. You see, when you worship, it breaks chains of oppression. It causes principalities and powers to bow. It conquers fear and comforts grief. It destroys doubt and invites God's very presence into your midst. It banishes sin. It crushes iniquity. It replaces sorrow with joy and lifts us to the very throne of God. And we're going to see that an act of worship was the thing that enabled all of what we're about to see following take place. It was an act of worship that effectively God used, God allowed, to keep his timetable on track and completely scupper the plans of the Pharisees. Because later that night, as they get into the evening, in the Jewish calendar it becomes the next day. So the Jewish calendar effectively is the, the 13th at this point. And being in Bethany, and this is where Jesus said, resided for this week. If you remember, he'd been coming in from Bethany to Jerusalem and then in the evening going back out again, having the meal in the evening, going back in the next day. And we see this journey. Mark's very helpful because he gives us and in the morning and the next day and in the evening. And it was, so we can follow and track through Jesus' movements with real clarity. And here he tells us that being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Now, it's so easy just to read these things and move on. Now, it's interesting that we find here that Mark doesn't give us the identity. Peter doesn't tell us or tell Mark seemingly who this individual is, who this woman is. And some people speculate, but actually we don't need to speculate because John tells us very clearly this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Jesus has spent obviously a lot of time. They lived at Bethany too. And I'm not sure which house. We don't know specifically whether Jesus had been staying with Simon for the week or whether he'd been staying with Lazarus and Martha and Mary for the week. Possibly, from the context of this, he'd been staying with Simon, but it would appear that Martha and Mary and Lazarus have all come along. And they're all together for this evening meal. Now, if you remember, an occasion prior to this, we saw Mary previously also sitting at Jesus' feet, worshipping. On that occasion, Mary gets quite upset. Sorry, Martha gets quite upset because she says, look, can't you, she says to Jesus, can't you tell my sister to help? You know, we've all been in that situation, haven't we? And she's really frustrated because she's cumbered with a great load of care, we're told. She was serving. And I'm sure you've all been in situations like that where you're doing something and you look around and you see someone that's not doing something. It can be very frustrating. But what she was doing was worshipping Jesus. It's interesting, whenever we see Mary, she seems to be in that context of worshipping Jesus. But what's really fascinating about all of this 
is the act of worship. This breaking this very expensive perfume effectively. And she pulls it on his head. She's anointing Jesus. And it's interesting because the question has to be asked, did she understand a little bit more than some of the others did as to what she was doing? Well, look at what Jesus said in a moment. John and Mark both tell us that the cost of this perfume was some 300 pence. Well, one pence typical, equal to a denarii. This is what it would have been. So 300 denarii. That was equivalent to a day's wage. A denarii was equivalent to a day's wage. So we're talking about 300 days wages, or effectively a year's salary. The average UK wage in 2018, apparently, is 27,271. So some of us were saying, well, we're not clearly not being paid enough. If other people, that's the average, What's, what are some people earning? But that's the average wage. And I just want to put this in context, because that's the equivalent value in that culture of what she poured over Jesus. I'm sure you're familiar with the account. You know what's going to happen. And there's a bit of an outrage because of this. What would you do if somebody had that kind of money and they they blew it all on something as seemingly pointless as buying a very expensive bottle of perfume and pouring it out? You know, what would we do if somebody came in here as a fellowship and we're very wealthy. And as an offering to God, rather than putting that money in the offering box at the back, just poured out some costly perfume as an act of adoration to God. I'm pretty convinced that most of us will be thinking exactly what the disciples thought. That is an extravagant waste of money. Think of what we could have done with that. We could have bought a new projector that's brighter, that's clearer. We could have bought a van that doesn't take five minutes to warm up every morning. You know, we could have done all sorts of things. We could have gone out and evangelized. We could, we could have afforded to pay somebody a salary to go out and spend their time knocking on people's doors and witnessing, or whatever we would have chosen to do with that money. Are you starting to see the importance of worship? Because clearly in God's economy, worship is this valuable. If you're interested, there's some of the um, top 10 perfumes that are available at the moment. The top one for a bottle of that stuff by uh, um, DKNY is uh, $1 million. Um, But apparently a lot of that's because of the the bottle it comes in. It's got jewels and all sorts of things on it, so it's not really the perfume. But the one below is more interesting, which is the pictured one. Um, It's uh, by this Clive Christian. I've never even heard of this. Uh, and I'm guessing probably most of you haven't either. Uh, It's about $12,721 per ounce. So you can do your rough translation into English on that if you want to. But, I mean, that's seriously expensive. Well, the stuff that Mary was pouring was even more expensive than that. But there are things like that out there. And we're told, and there were some, Matthew actually says all the disciples, actually. He says the disciples. He says, when, but when his disciples saw it, they had indignation. So Matthew says everybody sat there going, I believe this. John is a little bit more specific. 
But Mark just simply says, there were some that had indignation. Now whether Peter, by this point, looking back, was one of those that in his heart was thinking, this is a great waste of money, but by the time he's telling Mark, some of the others were uh, really uh, upset. Some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. They don't recognize that this was an act of worship. They didn't see how valuable worship was. And by the way, worship doesn't have to be when we get together, when we have musicians. Our lives should be worship. The music is something we use to accompany our worship. And it's very helpful. It's, we, it's very scriptural. We see it throughout the book of Psalms. David always seemed to use music to accompany his worship to the Lord. But music's not worship. Music's just music. It can be used for all sorts of things. But it is very good when we use it with worship. And worship is the way we live our lives. It's the attitude of our heart and of our minds all the time. I just want to read to you a couple of comments by Oswald Chambers, he says this, Faith in active opposition to common sense is mistaken enthusiasm and narrow-mindedness. That's what the disciples thought was going on here. It was mistaken enthusiasm, it was narrow-minded. And common sense in opposition to faith demonstrates a mistaken reliance on reason as the basis for truth. And isn't that what we all do? Don't we all tend to use our reason to decide what is true and what's not true? We base it on our own understanding. He goes on and says, Common sense and faith are as different from each other as the natural life is from the spiritual. And as impulsiveness is from inspiration. Nothing that Jesus Christ ever said is common sense, but is revelation sense. It's a totally different way of approaching life. Suppose God tells you to do something that is an enormous test of your common sense. Totally going against it, going against your common sense. What would you do? He goes on and says, we tend to say, yes, but suppose I do obey God in this matter. What about, and isn't that what we do? We start counting the cost. I mean, the disciples in this scenario, in this situation, were doing just that. That they, they somehow become disconnected from the reality that the Lord God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Hadn't been written yet, but they would later come to realize that he could do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Money doesn't mean anything to God. The value of things in that sense is irrelevant. It was the heart of Mary in this act. Oswald James goes on, always say, yes, I will obey God if what he asks of me doesn't go against my common sense, but don't ask me to take a step in the dark. He says, Jesus Christ demands the same unrestrained, adventurous spirit in those who have placed their trust in him that the natural man exhibits. If a person is ever going to do anything worthwhile, there will be times when he must risk everything by his leap in the dark. Just want to pause there because there are many people like that. I'm not sure if any of you have seen the film The First of the Few. 
It's a story of Reginald Joseph Mitchell, or R.J. Mitchell as he was known, who was the engineer who effectively developed and built the Spitfire. He built numerous planes and so on, and he realized that Germany had this incredible um, um, design program going on, developing planes. And on a visit to Germany, he realized the, the danger that this country faced from an aerial bombardment. And that led him to, despite ill health problems, he had cancer and a number of things, he fought through those things to eventually get this Spitfire built. You go to Southampton Airport, and as you go into Southampton Airport, there's a model, uh, I think three-quarter size, uh, or sorry, a third size of the, of the Spitfire. Because it was from there that the very first Spitfire took off in these tests. But that man gave up everything. It cost him time with his family. It cost him his health, ultimately. But as a result of his sacrifice, we had the Spitfire. And because of the Spitfire, well, you all know the history and what an impact that had on the Battle of Britain and how that became a major turning point in the war. And also what Chambers is saying here, that you know, if a person is going to do anything worthwhile, there'll be times they must risk everything. People in the world do that. Think of athletes, think of sports personalities, that you hear of the hours they spend training. Remember after the 2012 Olympics, there was a documentary about some of the athletes, and they were talking to Jessica Ennis, and talking about this grueling routine she had of training to be fit enough to compete. You know, Mo Farah and these other individuals, you know, people like Lewis Hamilton, in Formula One. You know, they gave up everything. It cost their families so much to be able to go to those events so that he could compete. And, and they do all of those things for an imperishable crown. So let's spin this round and ask, what do we do? What is our act of worship? i just finished that quote. He says, in the spiritual realm, Jesus, Jesus demands that you risk everything you hold on to or believe through common sense and leap by faith into what he says. Let's just look at some of the things we read in Scripture. Matthew 6.33 tells us that we should seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added, everything else, all the other stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, over the years I've seen situations that really break my heart when people pray for children and the Lord blesses them with a family. And then they stop coming to church because they want to spend time with their family. I've seen people pray for a new job. And then they take a job that means they won't be able to come to church on a Sunday. And they end up getting pulled away from the Lord. You know, or whatever other hobbies people can get into and suddenly they don't come to church, they don't fellowship. Now, we need people in all sorts of professions and I'm not saying that people shouldn't have those jobs, but when it becomes something that gets in the way of your relationship with God, there's a problem. Because we're told very clearly to seek first the kingdom of God. And it doesn't go along with our common sense. Because our mind says, yeah, but I've, I've got to earn, I've got to pay the bills. I've... 
What happens if you're offered overtime to work Sunday? Would you do it and miss church? Or would you trust God and say, no, God says seek first the kingdom of God. I will trust God first. Because I know that he can provide. That will be my act of worship. Yet there's so many ways we could spin this and talk about it in your own personal circumstances. I, I pray the Lord that would convict you this morning that God must be first. It doesn't make sense, but this is because it's spiritual and not natural. It didn't make sense to waste nearly 30,000 pounds worth of perfume in the natural Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now I do believe the correct understanding of that is that God will place within you the correct desires. Absolutely. But there is an element that God will bless you and give you the desires of your heart, the things you want, if you delight yourself in him. But notice which way it is. It's not you go after what you want and then hope God blesses. Is you delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Those things come secondary. It really, it's just a reiteration of Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things. And then trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. Because that's the problem. When we lean on our own understanding, we become like the disciples. We start counting the costs. We start dealing with common sense and reason. No, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he should direct thy paths. You know, this morning, do we have enough faith to let Jesus direct our paths? Even if it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, there's a number of times I've been in situations where I've made a, a decision based upon my trust in God that made no sense in the natural. I can tell you now, there's been really painful moments. But God never fails. God never lets us down. He's promised to never leave us or to forsake us. In John's accounts, in chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 3, then Mary, and took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenards, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the odor of the ointment. And John is the one who specifically says, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, speaks up. The others probably were all thinking this, but Judas seems to be the one that nails his colors to the mask. It says, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? He asked the question. Trying to put foolish Mary in her place. Such an extravagant waste. But then we're told, verse 6, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. 
John, who I'm very sure was close to the family, really kind of hits it here and says, but he said that because he cared nothing about the poor. He wasn't interested in what he was pretending. He just wanted this money because he's a thief. Back into Mark's account, Mark 14, picking up verse 6. And Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? I mean, it'd be quick and easy to read that as just, Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She has wrought a good work on me. And we just carry on reading. But I, I get the impression that there was a real firmness in Jesus' response. <laughs> a little bit like at home when I have to say to some of our children when they're trying to pick up Shreya, put her down. Don't touch her, leave her. I get that impression. That's the kind of, there was a real love for Mary as Jesus speaks these words. Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? In, in that, there's almost that implication of she's not the one with the problem. And Jesus says she's wrought a good work on me. And Jesus says, for you have the poor with you always. If your concern is for the poor, oh, there's plenty of opportunities to go and minister to them. And, and by the way, not that I'm against any of these things per se, but things like make poverty history, all the work they do, great, and all the charities that are out there to tackle poverty, fantastic. And, and if you feel convicted to support those things, great, do that. It's a good thing. But don't ever come under some illusion that you're going to solve the problem of poverty. The problem of poverty exists because the problem of sin. It's because of man's inhumanity to man. It's the same reason we have wars. And until Jesus is ruling and reigning, you will not solve the problem of poverty. Jesus says, you have the poor with you always. If you want to do, that's fine. And whensoever you will, you may do them good. Jesus doesn't speak against it. He doesn't say it's not a bad thing. He's just fine. But Jesus then says, but me you have not always. And she has done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Jesus knew what was going on. Now, how much of this the Lord Lord God or his Father had revealed to him ahead of time, we don't know. I'm sure that Jesus was aware that the Pharisees didn't want to take him during his feast time. And yet he knew that on the 14th he had to be on the cross. Because he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And on the 14th was the day the lambs were slain. And as she anoints Jesus, Judas suddenly nails his colors to the mask. And the plan becomes clear. If Jesus didn't know prior to that, I'm sure at that moment he immediately realized what was going to happen. And by the way, this is 24 hours before the next evening Judas would come back with those 600 plus armed guards and the leaders of the nation to arrest Jesus. Just 24 hours later, that's all it took. The cat was out of the bag now actually because now, well we'll see as we go on, but Judas was exposed. Jesus knew that he was going to be the one. And he'll make mention of that in the verses to come. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, that wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. So what is the legacy that Mary has left us from this? 
Well, we have to ask that question again. What is worship? It's the giving of the very best that we have, regardless of cost. Do you think that after this, Mary suddenly ended up in a situation where she was poor and she couldn't provide for herself? And No, not at all. I would imagine that a multitude of blessings were given her. You know, it's laying down our lives for him. That's what worship is. It's not that what I want, it's what he wants. It's not my will, but yours be done. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. To borrow Oswald Chambers' words, it's my utmost for his highest. And on Thursday this coming week, on the 15th, it'll be 101 years to the day that Oswald Chambers went home to be with his Lord and Saviour. He died in his 40s, a very young man comparatively. I say that because, you know. But that's the way he lived his life, my utmost for his highest. He learned the secret of letting go of everything this world has. What is it that the Lord has been saying to Linda recently? About letting go, letting God. That's the message for all of us here. Let go of our own lives, let go of our own plans, our dreams, whatever. Doesn't mean we become careless. But it means that we learn to worship Him. Doesn't mean that we learn a bunch of new songs. That's important, that's good, that's helpful. It's nice to keep things fresh in that sense. But unless those hearts are really seeking to worship Him through the pain, through the difficulties, Some of you remember, or you'll know the song by Matt Redman, uh, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. And it's a wonderful song, and obviously he borrows from the book of Job, that he gives and takes away. Blessed be your name. And I remember reading the, the, the story of how that song came about. It was after Matt Redman and his wife, uh, Beth, had had a miscarriage. And so they wrote that song, and the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I remember I'm not sure how many years ago, it was sometime after Marlowe was born. Marlowe was about two, two and a half. And it's still still raw now, but Joy uh, Joy fell pregnant. And we hadn't told the church. Mum and Dad knew, and Joy miscarried. And I know it's something that many people go through. People here have gone through it. That Sunday in church, we sang that song. 
and apart from mum and dad, I don't think, I'm not sure Katie may have known, I don't remember, but only very close family knew. And we sang that song. And it was the hardest song I've ever sung. To stand at the front, leaning and singing, he gives and takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Because God is good and does good. By the way, that means we do have five children. So that's it, we are done. Of course, Marla was the first of five daughters, and so if that baby was a daughter, then that's it, completely finished, no more. Praise God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But you know, that's what God is calling for. Us to worship him. In, in the hard times, in the difficult times. My, my grand used to say to me, you know, I used to go down to see, I'm sure I've told you many, many of you before that, you know, I'd get home from school and mum would give me the newspaper and I used to go down to Grand's, she used to live down the road from us. And I'd take the newspaper in and she'd sit down and she'd talk to me for ages uh, about the Lord, about spiritual things. She'd read to me um, from Oswald Chambers, from Atmosphere's Highest. And she used to say to me, you know, when it's difficult, when your days are not easy, that's the time to worship God. And so many times I've fallen back on that. You know, there's times that I've got home and I've had a hard day and I'll just pick my, pick my guitar up and I'll just sing to the Lord. You know, it, it's the same thing as David said after that stupid thing he did where he tried to number Israel and the Lord then gives him the choice of how he's going to bring judgment and he asks for the Lord to bring judgment so these plagues come upon the nation and upon Israel and Jerusalem. And then David pleads the Lord to stop and the angel is stopped on the threshing floor of Ornan, if you remember. It's, it's where the temple would later be built. And, and Ornan says to David, look, or Aruna, he's referred to as Ornan or Aruna. Um, he, he says to David, have the land, have it, just take it. And David said, no, I will pay you because I will not worship God with that which costs me nothing. Verse 10 of Mark 14 says, Then, and Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. You know, he had to go. There was, he knew now that this, this was, he had to do something. He was so incensed. The timing, by the way, hadn't been set. And I don't believe at this point they intended to come the following night. I think they still had this idea, if you read the the next verse, and when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. This is just the opportunity they've been waiting for. And he saw how he might conveniently betray him. Well, he doesn't get that opportunity. He doesn't get the opportunity of doing it conveniently in a way that worked out best for them because Jesus was still managing the timetable. And I think... We'll leave it there. There's loads more. We'll cover it next week. We'll enjoy just carrying on in this journey. Um, let's power hearts. Father God, we thank you this morning just for this reminder of how important worship is to you. Lord, we have been created to worship you. Oh, Father, give us hearts of worship, we pray. Father, I pray that you help us to see through the common sense 
Lord, through our own logic, our own reasoning. Lord, to come to a place where we are willing to give up everything for you. Lord, where we're willing to give up families and friends and relationships. And Lord, where we're willing to give up careers if necessary. Because, Lord, you will go before us. You will make a way where there seems to be no way. Lord, you are the God who has promised to provide for us. That you will direct our path. So, Lord, we need not worry about the next step. It's not that it's not important, but, Lord, it's not our business to worry. So give us, Lord, that faith to trust you through these things. And, Lord, help us to learn as individuals, as a church, as part of your church, to worship you. Oh, Lord, as we worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord, send the glory of your presence down in our midst that, Lord, a multitude would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We ask you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.